This afternoon, uh, our middle school students uh, are headed to see the new Avengers movie. I don't know how many of you have seen it. If you have, don't say anything about it, right? Uh, I am going uh, at 1230 with uh, my other son, purely for his benefit and entertainment, of course. Uh, We've learned that the the movie is close to three hours, so we've stopped drinking at this point because we can't uh, excuse ourselves to go to the bathroom. Uh, But you may have watched the news this week. It's expected to be uh, one of the most highest grossing films of all time. It's already uh, starting to claim a lot of the record books when it comes uh, to films. And if you know anything about it, from what I understand, uh, it's, it's, about the, it's the culmination of about 15 to 20 movies uh, that they've been making over the past uh, 10 or so years. So again, you can see I'm just generally interested in it as a cultural phenomenon, uh, not for any other reason at all. Uh, but by pure coincidence, I was thinking about this week, by pure coincidence, our passage this morning is the closing of another great drama. Except uh, this drama isn't fiction, it isn't uh, any sort of fantasy, and it certainly isn't uh, the brainchild of some cinema executive or creative team. Instead, it is the culmination of the great story of redemption. And this very true drama is a drama that involves all of us in very intimate ways. So this morning we're going to be reading from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 to 8 and then finish off by the chapter by reading verses 22 uh, to 27. This is God's Word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 22, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. 
They will bring into, into it the glory of the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of worship this morning. Father, our hearts need reminders. We need reminders of the gospel, but we also need reminders of our destiny, and that's what this passage uh, provides for us this morning. So we pray, Father, that your Spirit would be with us, that we can understand your Word, that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you, and that we would leave here changed because we have encountered you in the power of your Word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as you can tell, our passage is very much a divine drama, and as we look at this uh, divine drama, I think there are several roles that we can identify in this story. And, And the first role that we identify is a little different than the others, but the first one that we have to consider is the role of imagination, the role of our imaginations as we approach this book of Revelation. This book of Revelation was uh, originally written to Christians uh, right around the turn of that first century, and at that point, the Christians were facing uh, a very severe level of persecution. Uh, Many of them were hunted. At times, they were arrested. They were dragged out of their homes, uh, often tortured, often executed uh, for claiming faith in Jesus Christ. And so they receive this book, and it reminds them of really important things. Reminds them of the power and the sovereignty of God, that God is more powerful than any other emperor or ruler that is around them, and that reminder would have the effect of dispelling all sorts of uh, fears and anxieties that they may have. But the book was also written to do a lot of renewal, to renew their commitment to their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, to renew the vision of the kingdom of God. Really, it was written to remind them that no matter how difficult and oppositional this world became to them, that something far more beautiful and something far more powerful awaited them on the other side of this life. And so when people have looked at the book of Revelation, they've, they've come to it with, with really two different approaches. One is a a very literal approach to the book of Revelation, and all sorts of interesting theories throughout biblical interpretation have emerged as people have tried to look at the book of Revelation uh, literally. Some have looked at it and tried to identify when they think the world is going to end, and and then, of course, they write a best-selling book that everybody rushes out and buys, uh, identifying the end of the world on a specific date, and then that date comes and nothing happens. And everybody turns their books in to the closest uh, used bookstore, uh, and uh, it no longer becomes credited. I can remember hearing one interesting theory uh, in this vein that said Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist because he had that birthmark on his forehead. Do you remember that? And so that's what some of these literal approaches do. They look for a literal one-to-one correspondence uh, to actual events and actual people. But I think a better approach when we come to the book of Revelation is what I like to call the imaginative approach. Because I think that God is revealing things to us specifically in this book 
that are really too great for our minds to comprehend or to fully grasp. And so when we come to this book, the best thing to do is to engage our imaginations. When I was a kid, I had a a really active uh, imagination, and part of that was because of my circumstance. I I lived on a street that didn't have uh, any other kids. Uh, We certainly didn't have cell phones back then or uh, the internet, and we didn't have cable TV. So we only had three television stations. You young kids, you can't even imagine that, what that was like. And so we only had three television stations, so I had to be a kid with an active imagination. And I can remember walking around the neighborhood, creating all sorts of scenarios in my mind. Uh, I'd go to my uh, neighbor's weeping willow tree and, and, and break off one of the branches, and I'd walk around the neighborhood imagining I'm Indiana Jones with my whip doing all sorts uh, of interesting things. But in our culture today, we really don't use our imaginations like we once did. Uh, Kids don't use them as much because there is so much at uh, their fingertips, and adults uh, tend to lose their imagination uh, the older we get, thinking that that somehow having an imagination is for uh, our younger years or somehow childish, and I think that we are the worse because of it. Because when you come to the book of Revelation, you come needing an active and powerful imagination. So imagine this for just a moment. Imagine a jeweled city that descends from the sky. That's what verse 11 describes. It has high walls with 12 gates, and all of those 12 gates are guarded by angels. Revelation tells us that this city has 12 foundations, a a symbol of its enduring stability. And it says this in, in verse 11, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Revelation chapter 22 says that, there is a, that God's throne is at the center of it and that a river flows out from God's throne. This is the river from Psalm 46, whose stream makes glad the city of God. Trees, they line that river. They bear constant fruit that brings all sorts of healing and abundance. And the tree of life from the Garden of Eden is there, bearing the fruit for eternity. And what we learn is that this is the dwelling place of God's people for all of eternity. It's a place of overwhelming abundance and undescribable joy. It's a place of perfect peace and indescribable prosperity. It is the complete absence of wickedness and the effects of sin. I think that's actually the hardest thing for us to imagine when it comes to this heavenly realm, that that there is a complete absence of wickedness and sin. We've grown so accustomed in our world to all sorts of things that come from wickedness and sin. We've grown accustomed to pain and sadness, to to things like sickness and disease, to, to things like corruption and distrust, to darkness and death, and yet we come to this image and all of those things have been removed. This is the perfect height of all things perfection. And at the center of all of it, we read, is the Father and the Son. 
And that's why I wanted to tack on this passage to our Lenten series. If you've been with us throughout Lent, you'll know we've been talking about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son and and how they came together to accomplish our redemption. Well, here when we come to this passage in Revelation, we get a picture of their presence and their relationship for all of eternity to come. We see here the role of God the Father. We see God the Father, the the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and how He is, is seated on a throne and is at the center of all of it, of all of these images. We read about uh, absolute light and radiance coming from God the Father and His throne. We read that there is no sun or lamp. They are not needed because of the radiance that is perpetual and eternal coming from this throne. There is no darkness whatsoever. There is never any sort of night. And yet, despite this radiance, it says in chapter 22, verse 4, yet despite the radiance of God, they, God's people, will see his face. Now, it's easy to pass over that, but when you think about it in the grand scheme of God's word, that is a significant statement. Because all throughout the scriptures, we learn one thing very clearly, and we learn that God is holy and that he is set apart. And because of that, humanity cannot look upon him in his glory and his radiance. If you remember back to the story of Moses, Moses wanted to see the face of God. And so what did God do? He, he hid him in the cleft of a rock. And all Moses got to see was the very back of God's presence as he passed by. And when he came down from the mountain, his face was so radiant that people couldn't even look upon him, and so he veiled his face. And yet you come here to this passage, and what you see is that God's people can look upon the radiance of God's face. And what we learn is that the only way that a sinful people could ever get here to look upon the face of God and not be overwhelmed or destroyed is because of who the Father is with. We see, we observe his eternal companion. We see the role of the Son, the Lamb of God. The Son, the Son of God. This is the Lamb of God, the one who made the perfect sacrifice once and for all for our sin. If you were with us last week or were part of any sort of Good Friday service, you saw that this Son was crucified. He was executed between two common criminals and his last words just before he breathed his last were three. It is finished. And now we see the father saying things. He says, I am making all things new, verse five. But then in verse six, he says this, another three words, it is done. And see, because the lamb said, it is finished, the Father is now able to say, it is done. Because the great drama of redemption is now complete. Christ, through his sacrifice, has purchased and redeemed a people to be his own. He has gained victory over sin and death. He was the Passover lamb, the perfect sacrifice that was needed so that you and I 
could be made new so that we could spend an eternity with God the Father and God the Son. You see, because the Lamb was there and because of what He accomplished, we finally get to see the role of God's people in this great divine drama. If you look at the passage, you'll see that God's people are described as a bride on its wedding day, a bride being presented to its groom. We see that God the Father is presiding over this wedding. We realize that the dowry for this wedding has been paid by the precious blood of the Lamb. And in this great wedding, we, God's people, are united in intimacy to God for all of eternity. But I think what is the most powerful image of all this, at least it is for me, is verse 4, where it says this, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I know that we have four kids, and when you have four kids, you deal with a lot of tears. You deal with tears from sickness, uh, tears from fights, tears from frustration, tears from hurts. And as a parent, you spend a lot of time wiping away the tears from your kids. But one of the things that's been hard for us as parents is to know this, that no matter how many times my wife or I could wipe away tears from the eyes of our kids, we know that there will always be more of them. There will be tears in adolescence, there will be tears into adulthood, because we know fundamentally that life is full of all sorts of tears, because life is full of pain, it's full of hardship and suffering. But what we see in this passage is this, that when God comes and wipes our tears away, they will never return. They'll never return, because death shall be no more. Mourning will cease, there will be no crying, there will be no pain, because the former things have all passed away, and God is making all things new. See, friends, you and I might not be facing persecution like those first Christians were facing when they originally received this vision, but we certainly need help controlling all sorts of fears and anxieties that define our lives. We certainly need a a fresh picture of the power and the sovereignty of God over all things. We certainly need a fresh commitment and a fresh vision of what God is doing. And so, behold your Savior in this picture, in this divine drama, God the Father and the Lamb, and see where you will be spending all of eternity if you are one of God's own. You see, I think this, so, this passage can be sobering as well because what we see in here is that there are those who are still defined by their sins. Verse 8, there are those who still remain unclean, who haven't experienced the cleansing that comes from forgiveness in a relationship with God. There are those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, and what we see here is that they will receive the just punishment that they deserve for their sins. And so what Revelation does is it lays out two realities before us. 
And what we realize is that when you wind it all up, it has everything to do with your relationship to the Lamb, your relationship to Jesus Christ. And so, friends, by faith, cling tightly to His free gift of grace that comes from that Lamb. I want to end our time this morning by reading you just a quick quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He wrote all about uh, the nature of heaven, and he says this, encapsulates all, all this picture very well. He writes this, The promise of glory is the promise, almost incredible and only, imp- only possible by the work of Christ, that some of us, that any of us who really chooses so a- shall actually survive that examination shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or a burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain But so it is. Let's pray.